Hi, welcome to episode two of the Case for Conservation podcast. I'm your host, Andre Mardo. For this episode, I spoke to David Duthie about the links between nature and the COVID-19 pandemic. It's quite well established that COVID-19 is a zoonotic disease that passed from wild species to human beings. But some of the details are a bit less clear, and I invited David to help me to understand them better. David spent many years at different UN agencies that work on conservation. Although he's not a specialist on zoonotic disease, I invited him to speak about this topic because he's demonstrated a comprehensive understanding of every conservation topic that I've ever discussed with him. And I found that to be the case on this occasion as well. I think that's all that I need to say in terms of introduction, but just to let you know that about three quarters of the way through the discussion, there is an audio marker to indicate that we changed the subject and returned to an earlier part of the discussion. So that's just to avoid any confusion when that pops up. David, the reason for asking you on to the podcast was to talk about a specific aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is its causes. But before getting into that, could I ask you a question which I'm planning to ask all future guests, and that is how you uh, became involved in conservation in the first place? Sure. Um, I'll give you a little potted history of my life. I studied environmental biology at Oxford Polytechnic in the 1970s and uh, did a PhD on migration of moths after that and then became a private tutor in Oxford, but ended up teaching the daughters of a well-known environmentalist, Norman Myers. And through Norman, I got to work on some of the first um, biodiversity country studies in, in Kenya, in fact and through working um, there as an environmental consultant, I eventually came onto the radar screen of the United Nations Environment Programme. We were looking for a project officer for a project called Biodiversity Planning Support Programme. And having worked on biodiversity country studies in Kenya and also in Eritrea, I was well positioned to, to do that post. Uh, and that got me to UNEP Nairobi in 2000. I stayed there until 2005 and then moved to the Regional Office for Europe in Geneva and finally ended up in the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity Secretariat in Montreal, which is where we met. Yeah, that's right. That was 2011. Yeah. Right. So in Montreal, I was working for the Japan Biodiversity Fund, um, which was a $50 million support project to help countries revise their national biodiversity strategies in the light of the global biodiversity strategy, which was agreed in Japan in 2010 and is expiring at the next convention of the parties meeting uh, next year in China. And uh, we haven't actually mentioned that you are now officially retired from the UN. What else are you are you busy with? Yes, I became a gentleman of leisure in 2016 and returned to England. And having worked at the sort of 
global level for a while, helping developing countries mostly to meet their obligations under the Biodiversity Convention. I've become a little bit more local now. I'm a parish councillor, but we have a, a strong environmental um, angle to, to the work that we do. Uh, and I've also joined what's called the University of the Third Age, which is a global network of educational groups uh, for retirees and, and older people. And I've just become the chair of the local branch of that. And uh, obviously I'll be raising environmental awareness and uh, other things through both of those platforms. And then separately to that, uh, and this is something that I've known about for, for some time since our CBD days, you have been accumulating a library of open access uh, articles. I think, is it mostly peer-reviewed articles uh, on, on conservation? Can you just tell the listeners a bit more about that? Yes. Um, ever since I did my PhD, I've always been an information junkie. Uh, so I've always collected uh, references and uh, since 2008 I've been building an electronic library which now has uh, almost 75,000 articles in it, um, about 50% of which are free and open access. And I'm trying to find a mechanism with the help of the UNDP country offices for making that library available to developing country graduate students so that they would have good access to information on the broader environment and the negative impacts we're having on that broader environment. I think that it's much easier to go to a dedicated library that's been constructed by somebody who's an expert in the field, not to make too proud a claim, um, than to do a cold Google search. So, for example, um, in my library just earlier this morning, you know, I, I filtered for coronavirus and COVID-19. And there are about 500 articles that mention those two words in the title or abstract, which you can add at the click of a finger. And those are all, you can already be sure that those articles all have something to do with conservation already, right? So you, uh, you're faltering for COVID and pandemic articles within the conservation literature. Not, not necessarily. I, I, I throw a broader net for my personal use, um, but then I can cut down any time. But one of my roles within the University of the Third Age, which comprises mostly people over the age of 65, going up well into the 80s, is to be very knowledgeable about the impacts of the virus, especially on those vulnerable groups. So it's not just conservation-oriented in this particular case. Yeah, that's actually a nice segue into getting started on the, the sort of more uh, specific questions. I know that you're not sort of a, a specific expert on this, but I, I know how well-read you are, and that's why I asked you onto the podcast. Uh, could you explain what is meant by zoonotic disease? And then also just as a second part to that question, how prominent are zoonotic diseases in the overall scope of, of human health? Okay, so um, zoonotic disease is actually really quite simple. It's, it's any disease or illness of humans, um, not necessarily humans actually, um, which originates from another wild or domesticated animal. 
over the last hundred years or so, um, there have been approximately two new viruses per year added to the list of zoonotic diseases. But zoonotic diseases are not just viruses, it can be bacteria, they can even be small multicellular animals. Uh, the largest zoonotic disease organism that I have come across is a tapeworm, for example. Pork tapeworm, which you can catch from pigs, of course, uh, can cause a, a, a range of very severe side effects in, in some cases. And that, that's also classified as a, a zoonotic disease. And then it's estimated that about 70% of what are called emerging in infectious diseases, so new diseases which are being added to the list, it's estimated that about 70% of those are uh, zoonotic in origin. And that's a, a list of about um, 1,500, probably going up towards 2,000 known diseases now. Including very well-known ones like malaria, for example. Mm -hmm. and rabies, um, toxoplasmosis, mm -hmm. which you can get from cats and a host of others. Is it usually a case of a wild species passing it on to a domesticated species, livestock or, uh, or pet species, and then from there to human beings? Or is it very often just directly from wild species to, to human beings? Yeah, this one is, yeah, this is a little bit tricky because I mean, I think you can have all of those. You know, if you look across all of the zoonotic diseases, you'll find many different ways um, that the disease is transmitted, like malaria through mosquito, for example, and then some from wild species into domestic species into humans. Uh, then we have to remember that domestic species were once wild. When we domesticated them, we could have brought some of those wild diseases into them and they, now they act as a domestic reservoir. But the majority of zoonotic diseases tend to have their ultimate reservoir in a wild species. And they either come from the wild species directly to us or through a domesticated species. To give an example, uh, the avian flu, H5N1 avian flu from a few years ago, almost certainly originated in wild ducks somewhere in Southeast Asia, passed probably through domestic ducks mixed with domestic chickens, and eventually spread along the Trans-Siberian Railway with farmers traveling with chickens under their arms. So you know, it's, a, it's a complicated web that can be, and, and that makes uh, identifying some of these diseases and coming up with mechanisms for controlling them quite tricky. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's all kind of guesswork, just best guesses, right? You know, there's a, that's, that's a theory which sort of works and so far hasn't been proven wrong, but it's impossible to prove it exactly right. Yeah, I mean, for many years, scientists have been studying coronaviruses and they're fairly confident that the ultimate ecological reservoir for coronaviruses is bats. Uh, and, and bats are quite species rich. Um, they live in communes and they fly. They're the only mammals that fly. And this very high metabolism that they have when they fly has created a situation where 
coronaviruses can exist in them and the immune system of the bats doesn't get rid of them, they tolerate them. And what this has resulted in is a, a, like a swarm of coronaviruses. Some scientists estimate that there may be over 2,000 uh, different coronaviruses in bats. And what that means is the coronaviruses themselves are swapping bits of genetic material and constantly creating new viruses. And every so often, one of these evolves a mechanism that enables it to spill over, is the word we use, into a new species. Now, it's thought that this coronavirus has an ecological reservoir in horseshoe bats, and that either through a wet market in China or via a pangolin in a wet market, it transmitted to, to humans and is able to then spread from human to human, which makes it so difficult and dangerous. Do you know why they think a penguin might be involved? Well, even before the coronavirus and, and COVID-19 crisis emerged, scientists in, in China, in fact, in the very city where the outbreak uh, occurred, they were sequencing the genetic material. And then they can compare the genetic sequences from different species and they can backtrack and, and find a kind of common ancestor. Now, when they do that, they find a very strong similarity between the coronavirus sequence in the horseshoe bat and parts of the sequence which also occur in the pangolin. So what they think may have happened is that they had um, a number of coronaviruses jumped across into the pangolin, swapped them with genetic material again, and then became able to infect humans. All of the genetic sequence work is to some extent based on probabilities. So, so you know, you, you, you're very unlikely to find the, the, the real smoking gun that tells you exactly where the origins. But based on my reading of the literature, the pangolin hypothesis is still the most likely one. Some of the more wacky ideas are that the virus escaped from the lab, which is doing the research on coronaviruses. But there's been a very thorough interview with the head of that lab, and she says, you know, they never isolated this particular coronavirus in, in that lab. There are other theories who say that it's even genetically engineered that it was manufactured you know, in a laboratory and, and escaped but there's sufficient evidence of similarity in wild, free-ranging organisms that that's an extremely unlikely uh, hypothesis. And I guess there will always be, uh, in a case like, like this, there will always be some conspiracy theories. Exactly. Before I, I ask my sort of central question, I just wanted to mention one other thing, which I think was in an article that you wrote, where you spoke about bats and two other groups of, of mammals, uh, which are also disproportionately responsible for zoonosis. And those are primates and rodents. And the reasons for those three, bats, primates, and rodents, uh, are completely different. Um, of course, the idea doesn't originate with me. It's what I'm extracting from, from the literature. Um, bats and rodents are the most species-rich mammals. And they both live 
Fast and Furious lives, and they move around quite a lot. As you said, bats fly, rodents uh, disperse, and, and like living close to, to human populations. Uh, so that's that's kind of reason for, for those two. Primates are slightly different because, of course, we are primates, and therefore there's a strong genetic similarity, and that means that a disease that's in a gorilla or a chimpanzee might find it quite easy to, to spread into a, a, a human. And this is probably the case with uh, HIV. So now that you clarify those uh, few points, um, something that I, I keep on reading in, in articles is that habitat degradation and or deforestation is not just correlated with, but is, is a cause of zoonosis. Uh, and you know, it can lead to pandemics like uh, COVID-19. In the peer-reviewed literature, I don't think I've seen anything that actually suggests that that, that is the direct reason for COVID-19, but they do uh, talk about that being a likely reason and a proven reason for pandemics happening. But what I've noticed is that these articles and these pieces of writing will often start off mentioning that, and then the rest of the conversation will be based on that uh, that statement, but without really explaining how or why. Uh, so the main thing I wanted to ask you in the sort of center of this uh, discussion, perhaps, although we'll, we'll talk about other things as well, is what is that link? Okay, I mean, I agree with you that it's very easy to find in the first sentence of lots of articles about uh, the pandemic, you know, that habitat destruction and, and uh, deforestation in particular are the cause. But let me let me just talk you through my way of looking at this. It's not so much the, the habitat destruction, which is the key thing to focus on. It's what we're doing at the interface between human controlled landscapes and natural or wild landscapes. Uh, and, and in particular, what, what I think of as the porosity, the permeability of, of that interface. So imagine if we go back a little bit in time and we have large expanses of intact forests with human uh, indigenous inhabiting those forests. So what I call forest dwellers, they would probably, this is me speculating, they would probably get exposed from time to time to an emerging infectious disease and it could make them sick, it could kill them, or they could develop some kind of immunity to it. Um, but there's no contact with the rest of the world. Then imagine that as humanity increases in numbers over the time, more and more humans are living close to forests. And most uh, socioeconomic studies that I've read um, say that if you live within five kilometers of a forest margin, you'll probably make use of it through hunting, collecting, non-timber forest products, etc. So then again, you have an interface with, with wildlife, but it's not going very far away. Then the third uh, way I like to think about it is what I call forest invaders. So this is when we go deep into the forest through building a road or mining, and then you cut and you start to fragment the forest and the interface becomes that much longer uh, and more permeable. If you take a checkerboard analogy of a forest, 
and you remove 50% of the cells, you maximize the interface. And of course, that's what we've been doing to a lot of our forests. It's, it's not just loss of area, it's fragmentation of areas mm -hmm. as well. And then, and this is the last of my <laughs> examples, I have what we call forest movers. So this is when you go into the forest and you take something out and you transport it into the human dominated landscape. So of course the wildlife trade is a classic example of that. Um, but there are also examples um, that are more natural. So say for example, you fragmented a forest and um, the bats in that forest no longer have access to enough resources and they're forced to fly into the human dominated landscape to, to forage. So it's not humans moving them, it's humans forcing them to move. And then finally, going back to, let's say we've got a small village somewhere in China where they go into the forest and collect bats for the markets. And maybe third generation still live there, but they're, son moved to Wuhan and is running a wildlife food stall in Wuhan and their daughter is now studying at the University in Oxford and it's Chinese New Year coming up when everybody moves together then suddenly what was staying on the forest interface can now be transported anywhere in the world within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is the key, is that change in interface and porosity, not just loose habitat degradation. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm fully on board with the idea that the harvesting of wild species uh, is, you know, very obviously something that's going to increase the chances of uh, zoonosis. But you don't need to just destroy habitat to catch bats, right? It's just the extraction of a, of a species. And sort of along with that, Someone could make the argument that if you were to, in the case of um, of logging, you know, extracting uh, tree species, that if you were to extract individual trees, you know, without harming the rest of the forest, that would probably be more likely to make transmission happen than the clear the clear felling of an entire forest. You know, so I'm just kind of, I guess, I just worry a little bit that the idea of pinning the blame might backfire a little bit. I mean, I, I agree that there is a possibility of a backlash of, of using that argument, and it does seem to be happening at the moment in, in Amazonia mm. and in Brazil, where environmental regulations are being loosened and, and uh, both legal and illegal loggers are, are taking advantage of, of that and encroaching onto indigenous lands, for example. So I think we do, do have to be careful, uh, and I think you know, conservationists maybe have not thought carefully enough about jumping on the COVID bandwagon. You know, I, I think from my point of view, it's a, it's a kind of honest mistake to make because um, the biodiversity crisis is, is becoming pretty serious and conservationists are not clutching at straws, but are, are willing to take up any argument that they think might help them to make some progress on, on the issue. I guess what concerns me most is that the the literature is not making the point clearly enough. 
uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the many of the articles that I read don't say anything about how this link or what the link is exactly between habitat degradation and uh, and transmission. And then many of the ones that do will uh, cite uh, secondary sources. I, I saw this again and again. You expect to be able to trace the reference back to the examples, the real life examples, but then you have to go to, that, that just directs you to the next publication and sometimes the next publication. So um, perhaps my main concern here is more one of the tightness of the of the scientific arguments. A kind of counterexample just came to, to my mind whilst, whilst you were speaking. You know, it's more change and the pace of change than it necessarily being degradation. Mm -hmm. And I, I assume you've heard of Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so in on the east coast of the USA, Lyme disease has been increasing. But it's been increasing because of an increase in, in not forests really, but in, in woodland and, and trees mm -hmm. close to people living in suburban environments. And that's allowed white-tailed deer and rodents, um, which act as, as the vectors for the for the ticks that eventually bite the humans. You know, so so it could be that reforestation leads to an emerging infectious disease. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, obviously, most of human impact on the environment at the moment is negative from an ecological and, and increasingly a public health point of view, but not necessarily always. That uh, reminds me of some of the discussions about buffer zones as well. There's something else which has been brought up without very much discussion and explanation is this idea that buffer zones are necessary, you know, between human beings and wildlife, but without really saying what a buffer zone would uh, would look like, you know, what, what that would consist of. Uh, so some people might think of those reforested areas as being buffer zones, but what is your sense of what, what a buffer zone could look like? I don't think a buffer zone is going to really be like a 10 kilometer strip of, you know, uninhabited landscape. I think the way the One Health movement, I can say a little bit more about the One Health movement uh, later, is going, is that scientists are getting to the position where they can almost predict where these highly transparent or highly porous uh, interfaces are. And, and the buffer would be actually increased monitoring and surveillance of likely emerging infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you have to have intensive study, and there are proposals for billion-dollar world Verome projects that would sequence all known and, and discover all known viruses. So you, you, you build up in advance knowledge of who the, the likely uh, enemies are. Mm -hmm. And then you use improved um, local networks for surveillance. So where you think there's, there's a likely output, you go to those villages, and you sample much more quickly looking for antibodies that indicate that something is likely to be spilling over. So I, I don't think it needs to be a habitat transformation. It's, mm -hmm. it's more a transformation in how we respect nature and the threats that nature is posing for us. It's an area where a specific kind of effort is focused, right? And that effort is basically monitoring. The effort of, of monitoring creates uh, a buffer zone out of whatever whatever the habitat might be. 
Yes, I mean, for example, there's a project or program that's been running, uh, funded by USAID, called PREDICT, uh, and, and they actually have been working in 31 countries, including China, where they've been building up this knowledge database of coronaviruses. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a not very nice twist, when the US president uh, heard about this, he cancelled the PREDICT. Hmm. program just because it was linked to China. It was a, a knee-jerk reaction. I'm, I'm sure it will come back. And there, there are, I don't know whether you will have already come across this article, but there is uh, recently this same group of authors has, has proposed you know, a program which would cost billions per year, but they compare that with the trillions that the current COVID-19 virus is, is causing uh, to the global economy at the moment. It's still quite a big ask, I would imagine. Billions still sounds like a lot. You just have to find the right things to compare it to. Something else I wanted to just touch on is that uh, there is a, a clearer link between the exploitation of species and very often threatened species are, are mentioned and uh, zoonosis. And you know, you touched on that a few times in, in the discussion, the, the extraction of wildlife from habitats, whether or not they are degraded habitats. Do you think that too much is being made of the claim that if we stop harvesting uh, threatened species in particular, uh, we'll reduce the chances of transmission? Because even though many th species are threatened, most species are, are not threatened. Okay, let, let me tackle the wildlife trade aspects of, of this first. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely think that there's a strong case for better regulation of both legal and definitely illegal wildlife trade transmission pathways. Uh, I don't necessarily think that a ban is, is the way to go, uh, even though China has gone down that route, at least temporarily. Mm -hmm. uh, Vietnam has been a, an exceptional case they, until recently, they hadn't had a single death from COVID-19, even though they share a border with, with China. Uh, and I haven't read much about exactly why that is. Partly, it's undoubtedly due to the fact that they did suffer from the SARS epidemic in 2009. Mm. So they are better prepared the way other countries like South Korea have been. But uh, I was reading an article uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, has been looking at coronavirus density numbers, if you like, along the, the wildlife food trade channels from hunter to market to restaurant. And what these researchers have found is that the numbers of coronavirus particles detectable increases as you go along the chain. In other words, we're creating the situation for the virus to become more prevalent by crowding together animals, by not looking after them, by stressing them, etc, etc, etc. Now in Vietnam, bats appear on the menu fairly frequently, and there's also a strong industry collecting guano from bats' caves uh, for use as fertilizer. And I'm just wondering whether, you know, there's a kind of herd immunity to coronaviruses in Vietnam mm -hmm. because of exposure to not 
COVID-19, but to a sufficiently large number of similar um, coronaviruses mm-hmm. to give them some sort of immunity. And, that, um, and that's, uh, sorry to interrupt, but that, uh, that's on the menu. Is that that's something that's been uh, been around for a long time, presumably, in order to, to support that uh, that theory, I guess it would it would have to have been something that's that's uh, that's cultural and historical. Now, coming back to to the threatened part of of what you were saying, uh, I agree with you that the majority of uh, species that are on the menu in those in those wet markets are probably not seriously endangered. Uh, I think possibly the connection has become too strong because we're dealing with pangolins as a possible intermediate uh, vector. And pangolins are, of course, extremely threatened at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I was struggling to think of, a, of another seriously endangered species you know, off the top of my head. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess there are some where they become like pangolins, you know, extremely prestigious items on, on menus and banquets and so on yeah i guess i just uh, i just worry a little bit that sort of pinning our hopes on on a particular statement like that can can backfire a little bit yes i mean uh, elizabeth Morena, the executive secretary of the convention on biological diversity mm-hmm. was very careful to say that the wildlife markets need to be regulated and, you know not not banned because uh, too many people are still dependent upon um, wild food both in Asia and in Africa, and in South America, of course. And apart from that, um, of course, the informal markets would simply boom. So what would, I mean, if you were suddenly asked to be advisor to the government of, for example, China or, or Vietnam, and asked for your opinion on, on regulation, what, what would you say? You said you mentioned that you, an outright ban probably wouldn't be appropriate. And I guess what you mean is that it wouldn't be effective, right? It wouldn't be the most effective way of doing things. And also, as you mentioned now, it would have probably quite severe consequences for, for communities. Yeah, well, I, I think um, clearly you know, improving the regulation by making sure that all of the markets are fully licensed and, and all of the traders within them are fully licensed. Uh, improvements in, in animal uh, care and, and hygiene uh, regular monitoring of both food and uh, personnel, mm-hmm. and, and as I say, linking that to um, working your way up the, the transmission lines to the, the hotspots um, of uh, Stilopla. Right. But then the thing is that those, those, I mean, those all sound like very good proposals, but None of those would necessarily do anything to reduce the number of uh, species, including threatened species that are being taken from the wild, right? So I'm just wondering, like, how do you link regulations to conservation in a, in a case like that? Well, if, if I'm right that there are only a few seriously endangered species, mm-hmm. then the things that I was proposing would stabilize the the wildlife trade market because you you should be able to uh, calculate you know what a sustainable harvest of those particular species would be 
if you make sure that the different species are being traded in different parts of the market so that they're not coming into combination and, and, and being allowed to exchange disease material. Mm -hmm. And and then you would have to introduce specific measures from for more endangered species. Uh, and I believe it was you who suggested in a, in a, one of our previous discussions that this could maybe be done better under the CITES uh, Convention for International Trade in Endangered Species to introduce some sort of the disease public health or human health component to the way species are added to the list and, and allow countries to, to better monitor and license uh, their international movements, yeah. although that wouldn't help with domestic movements, of course. Mm -hmm. And I guess also just the, the way that the cookie has crumbled in this particular case, there is strong evidence that uh, penguins may be involved and therefore suggestions, I guess, that could be made for regulation. I heard at, a, at an earlier stage, I heard that the Chinese government were, I think, I don't know exactly how they decided on on a species being threatened or not. I don't know if they were using IUCN's guidelines, but basically if a species was threatened, people were not allowed to trade it for food, but they were allowed to trade it uh, medicinally. Uh, and in the case mm -hmm. of pangolin, that meant that uh, they were being traded in, in fairly large numbers. I know that uh, immediately at the beginning of the year, they imposed a total ban on the wild, uh, wildlife food trade markets. Uh -huh. Uh, and they were preparing legislation and there were rumours that the legislation was going to be a, a, a full ban. But since then, I don't think the legislation has been promulgated. And I think the government of China is probably reviewing the situation and having a second think about exactly what they, they want to do. I, I don't know if they use the IUCN criteria. classifications. Mm -hmm. I suspect they do. But most of the red listing is done uh, at an international level, and then not every country necessarily comes up with a national red list. Mm -hmm. Although I suspect China does have one. Hi, I'm just stepping in here to let you know that this is the point at which we changed the course of the conversation back to what we've been discussing earlier. The, the statement would be something to the effect of habitat degradation is a, a cause of uh, increased transmission of zoonotic disease. And then in some cases, there's no reference to that. It's just a statement. So, you know, you just have to take their word for it. In other cases, they'll put a reference or two in brackets. If you then go and have a look at those references that they've cited, those references will do the same thing. They'll make the same kind of statement. Habitat uh, degradation is the cause of uh, increased zoonotic disease transmission, and then they'll give another reference. And then you have to go to that one to, fi to find out what the, the study was that, that uh, came up with that information. And my understanding was that you should really be citing the publication which did the research to come to that conclusion, So, and which, which are usually kind of fairly local level studies, right? It's usually sort of within a particular country or a particular particular area and then uh, that's one bit of bit of data that goes towards coming up with a conclusion like that or do you think that that is just such a an obvious conclusion an obvious statement to make that you really don't need to uh, back it up with a bunch of references as we discovered through the conversation so I'm, I'm a bit more comfortable with statements that say that emerging infectious diseases are the result of, uh, of habitat 
and degradation because oh. I see fragmentation and things like that as, as degradation. So mm -hmm. it doesn't cause me um, sleepless nights, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think what you put your finger on in terms of the referencing is the fact that you know, we're sitting on an exponentially increasing pile of research literature. Mm. Mm. Uh, going back to the library I'm trying to build, you know, every day is like running on a treadmill for me just to, to, to kind of keep up for it. And I think this inevitably, inevitably leads to people not being able to backtrack and, and cite the original researchers. I mean, I, I like to think I'm quite good. You know, I read an article and then I read the bibliography and then I go and find, you know, some of the references. It sounds like you've been doing the same. But increasingly, you know, when you've got research tenure track type people trying to get as many publications as possible, I think we've let quality slip a little bit there. Mm -hmm. And when you superimpose on that an additional literature um, of newspaper journalism, magazine journalism, where environment is increasingly being covered, then I think it, it becomes quite quite difficult to, to maintain those high standards that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And uh, just with COVID-19 articles in particular, there's, it's incredible, isn't it? It's just uh, hundreds and probably thousands of articles a day that are, are being produced. Yeah, not yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I saw a number, I think, 20,000 or might even have been 200,000. I mean, it's just crazy. It's very, very difficult for, for most people to sort of backtrack to that original reference. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I do think, you know, if we concentrate more on, on the border between a human influenced and a, and a natural or more natural landscape, mm -hmm and use words like spillover, mm -hmm. we more accurately explain the relationship. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily have to have anything change in the remaining forest. You just make it leaky. Yeah, and logging roads in particular have been implicated as a quite a clear example of that. You know, they, they, they don't necessarily take up very much space themselves even, but they provide access to, to much the deeper and uh, less explored parts of the forest in this case. Yeah, I mean, the classic example is uh, transboundary roads in the Amazon, you know, with, with uh, the military government historically in Brazil, you know, wanted to open up the Amazon um, by building roads, you know, to, to get control of it because it was considered, you know, to be a jungle and a barrier to development. And mm -hmm. then the, the famous Trans-Amazonian uh, trans Highway was right across it, but it degraded so quickly. You know, it, was, it was a tarmac road originally, uh, and it degraded so quickly it became unusable. Mm -hmm. And now President Bolsonaro is, is threatening to, or planning to, to repave it. So if, let's say you have a block of forest and you vastly increase the porosity by building logging roads and whatever else, you know, fragmenting the, the habitat, doesn't that mean that there will be an increased uh, contact between a very limited number of people, a limited group of people and the forest? And those people are the loggers and possibly the farmers who would sort of move in there and, uh, you know, use the the cleared land for agriculture or the, the hunters. But isn't it, isn't it a very small number of people that would, would actually be exposed to those? Or I suppose your, your counter argument would be that you only need one person to transmit the virus, right? 
No, statistically, you need more than one, I think. Um, yeah. But no, this is where the second thing comes in, that is, is this, this massive interconnectivity and speed of transmission mm -hmm. beyond that five-kilometer uh, section of people who interface with, with the edge of the forest or loggers who move in and out. The, the most heavily impacted countries with COVID in, in the early uh, outbreak were all owners of one of the top 20 airports in the world, the top 20 busiest airports in, in the world. We here in, in England, we got the virus from half a dozen different countries. And, it, and it's that, you know, the fact, the analogy that I used, you know, that granny could be living in that five kilometer zone next to the edge of the forest, her son could be working in a big city in the wildlife uh, food market, and his daughter could be studying in the University of Oxford. Mm -hmm. And they may all have met up for Chinese New Year. Mm -hmm. That's all neat. But then let's think of two models. So model A is that there's no habitat degradation, but people are going into the forest and extracting uh, wildlife for consumption and uh, medicine and all the rest of it. And then model B is severe habitat degradation and fragmentation, and also people taking wildlife from the forest for the same reasons. Now, I guess my question is, why would the one be worse than the other one? Is it simply because in, in case B, they're able to harvest more wildlife because of access to the forest, or is it more than that? I wouldn't draw such a, a big distinction between the, the two. I think both are per perfectly possible mechanisms. And I wouldn't say one is necessarily that much greater than the other. And, and I think there's a third one, that if you degrade a forest and force those forest-dwelling species to move out, we haven't done anything except degrade the forest, but they've increased the, the porosity. Mm -hmm. Right. As to, as to how many emerging infectious diseases have gone down each of those three pathways, I, I couldn't put a number on it. Just to kind of, again, be devil's advocate, you said that the between A and B, there's not necessarily so much of a difference, but the difference is that there's no habitat destruction or habitat degradation in A, but there is habitat degradation in B. So if there's no difference between them, then aren't you saying that habitat degradation is not increasing the chance of transmission? I think maybe we've got a, a, a temporal um, misunderstanding here. Uh -huh. Um, if you've got a Chinese village on the edge of a uh, forest, then they have degraded the forest because they've been moving the agricultural frontier. It's mm -hmm. not so much the degradation of the forest that's left, it's the fact that the forest is gone. Mm -hmm. that, 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 I think, is what people are referring to when they loosely talk about forest degradation. Mm -hmm. Not the condition of the remaining forest, mm -hmm. but the fact that the agricultural frontier has moved through the forest. People don't realize that we've, you know, totally transformed, you know, something like two thirds of the global landscape. That is yeah. all degraded, well, not all degraded forests, but that's an awful lot of degraded mm. forests. And it, and, you know, means that humans that are right up against the interface with, with wildlife much, much more than, than we ever were historically. This speed of movement thing is also very important. I think it's underplayed mm -hmm. because it, it's an inconvenient truth. But the previous Spanish flu uh, pandemic came when troops were moving all around the world because of uh, the World War One. 
that was the closest we've ever been to the level of mobility that we take for granted uh, in, in this century. And I think that's as big a contributor to the pandemic component as opposed to disease and, and epidemic as the, the uh, initial spillover. And if we go back to flying without checks and things the way we did before the pandemic, we'll get more of the same. Okay, that wraps up episode two. Head over to the episode notes or the website if you'd like to look up further resources linked to this topic. There's a lot available, so David and I tried to select some of the more useful and interesting information to make it a bit easier. Next time, I'll be speaking to Mao Amis about how we could be doing conservation better in developing countries. Mao is founding director of the African Center for a Green Economy, and he has worked on various initiatives around Africa, which will be the geographical focus of this episode. I do hope that you can join us again for this important discussion.